What's up, everyone, and welcome to another special episode for quarantine classes, and particularly on the subject of Philippine area studies, where we talk about the Philippines in general, but particularly for this series of lessons, we will talk about the development of the Philippines starting from the pre-colonial times up until the contemporary world. So today at present, oh sorry, today we will be discussing about the American colonization period and with me right now are two of our two of our special guest guests. So they are from my IS4 class. We have Jan, David and Antoinette. So Jan and Antoinette, can you introduce yourselves to everyone? Good afternoon, everyone. My name is John David Cimentari of International Studies. Hello, so I'm Antonette Joy Derecho, a second year student of AB International Studies. All right, so as I've mentioned earlier, our topic is actually American development. It's, and it's also one of the very interesting points of history during our time. In fact, every discussion of history is very interesting towards Philippine development. But uh, if you could, uh, introduce our viewers about this topic that would catch their attention that would be really cool so can you give it away jen yes thank you sir so today we will know about the philippine political and economic development in the scope of the american occupation second republic commonwealth and pre-cold war era here we can know the complexities and the movements whether the the economic or the politics in our country before was good or bad and how was it able to protect against itself from the abuse the it was there the dilemma whether should it be centralized or not should it be framed by war meditated by politics filtered through emerging class struggles and among others especially when it comes to internal interests all right so since we've talked about us or a sort of development let's let's focus also for the start in terms of how we developed politically first so i think uh uh Antoinette will discuss for us the development of the political landscape of the philippines during the american colonization period okay so, so um during the american occupation uh there were a lot of uh things that american had um contributed in our our society and as a as a nation whole so uh the americans uh help uh establish our de democratic institution uh during the uh during december 21 1898 president william mckinley issues the benevolent assimilation proclamation which is the assimilation of a people group by absorbing foreign people into a new culture with a primary stated reason being that is an act of benevolence so the american promise to train filipinos in a democratic governance until they are ready to govern themselves so in support of the philippines to establish of a government that was both free and democratic the american officials focus on promoting public education and development of a reliable legal system so um uh as early as 1907 the first legislative assembly was elected made up 
of all Filipinos and largely left under the Philippine control. And also, uh, the Americans uh, promoted the formation of civil service that, that will be run by the Filipinos. In addition to that, our government was actually filled with a Philippine Commission. The upper house is the Philippine Commission and the lower house will be the Philippine Assembly. So here, our speaker for the Philippine Assembly was uh, Sir, Man Sir Sergio Osmeña and Manuel Elquezon is the minor minority floor leader. So in the state building, we have new colonial power. Of course, new colonial power comes new Western influences. So it's quite different at first to Spain because, of course, we know Spain. Uh, we have friars, we have political officials who took advantage of our country. However, they have different approach. America has different approach. They, just like what Tonet said, or pertain, they, they spread the ideas of democracy, schools, roads, electricity, and especially English language. So here, we have three institutional pillars of colonial state building. One is the professional civil service, second, public education, and third is the formation and training of the Philippine Constabulary. So this is the peacekeepers. This is the peacekeepers to uh, govern what is right or wrong. So just like today, we have police now, but for the Philippine Constabulary, we have American uh, American Army or American officers and Philippine officers. So afterwards, it was actually it actually became almost like a Spanish policy because here in the Bureau Civil Service, they actually want to have a various executive and line agencies where they prefer American civilians and military men who had been honorably discharged. So all recruits, both either uh, American or Filipinos. They should be the men of the highest character and fitness who could conduct their duties unaffected by the partisan politics. However, our Governor General, William Howard Taft, the first Governor General, granted the right of engage, engaging in private businesses while on active service. So, of course, this is, this is a surprising echo of Spanish policy during conquest. Why? Number one. First, they were eager to distinguish uh, American rule from the Spanish era when the bureaucrat graveled in a formal abasement in introducing their correspondence when it was dominated before by the bishop and the cleric. Second was the commission was determined that politics not to undermine the bureaucratic development Filipino leaders also acknowledged the need for a professional apparatus to implement programs created by the executive and future legislature. Thus, in its early phase, civil service was a regime of law, not of men. Alright, so it shows that uh, it already gave us uh, an impression that the Spaniards, compared to the Philippine uh, Americans, is that the concept of state building is really uh, visualized in this period, whereas during the Spanish colonization, it was more of a. There's no really proper, proper uh, attempt to, to create or symbolize the state. Whereas the Americans, they tried to at least show us the attempts of, of how or how to, to institutionalize our, our statehood. So. 
I think that's that's one of the one of the discussions. And also, uh, there is one of the biggest factors that 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 Spain had encountered during its colonization period is to 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 gain influence among the among the provinces and among the among the regions outside of Cebu and Manila. So, how did the Americans try to cope up with this uh, sort of dilemma in terms of colonization in the Philippines, particularly on on the mountain provinces and the regions in Muslim Mindanao? They're, they are basically one of the inaccessible or uh, hard-to-access areas of the Philippine uh, territory. After that, sir, it was actually thanks to America because they were the uh the government before were not able to create the geo body or realize the geo body geo body rather because it was through the american military military uh, military power that the we were able to see on how really the mindanao works with the luzon and uh visayas so this is actually known as parallel state building in special provinces so compared to luzon and visayas which are run by the civilian officials or superiors. But rather for the Mindanao, these are actually military governed. So we have here the two special provinces, the Mora province and the Mountain province. It's actually quite ironic here, sir, because in order to protect the Muslim, there's this new agency that they created, the Bureau of Non-Christian Tribes. So it's not actually about racial or religious bias, okay? It's, it's more on giving definitive terms in order to separate the Muslims from the from the Visayan people and the Luzon people. So they create a definition for Filipinos as the properly applicable to Christian peoples only. So now we could say that the Muslims and the Filipinos. So rather than Muslims being Filipinos, it's there's a separation. Because mm. the Datos before the Sultans, they actually don't like Filipinos. They don't want their inroads. They want, they hope to have alliance with the military soldiers so that they could re- recover their position in the Southeast Asian trading network. Because as we all know, Muslims, Muslims already already have a good connection of network in the trading in- industry, so in other countries. So here, uh, they hope, they actually hope that they could protect themselves from the uh, what do you call this, from the American patrons, from the Filipino abusers. Something like that. So even at the point of American colonization, it was evident for Muslim Mindanao to to assert a sense of uh, sense of autonomy or independence. In fact, not just from the Americans, but from the from the mainland Filipinos itself. That's actually very interesting to know. Like one of the one of the toughest to conquer the conquer regions are even as strong as they are colonized as well. So. Let's go back to to the go back to the main regions itself. So one of the biggest concepts that they had created is the the sort of sense of nationalism, right? So like this is where the populists try to emerge, and the sort sort of concept of tutelage training for the development of our political system also bore into fruition. So can you tell me more about that one? 
So before, sir, they actually wanted centralization. That's why it became a really big problem why they couldn't uh, annex the Mindanao itself. Because here, for the when the American came, Americans came. Of course, the Filipino leaders before or the elites were not able to join the revolution or were not were not for the revolution. They formed the party. This is the Federalist Party. This is what we call the pro-Americans. So for them, they favor independence rather but for but they actually remain true spirit to the revolution but realistic in the face of american power because for them they could take advantage of this because uh, if they kind of collaboration with the nuclearizers and totalitarian training so perhaps they could conserve filipino nationalism but what they uh, the they were actually for the first ones to outline this political alternate alternative to revolution and resistance but their opponents ultimately perfected this 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 is now the nationalista party so before the national national nationalista party was actually not one it was actually composed of different kinds of parties with the same views uh they were actually the minorities who were uh what do you call this they were subject to constant harassment, imprisonment of seditious activity. More importantly, they're not even able to access American powers. But things changed when a new generation of elected provincial governors, appointed local judges took on the Nationalista label. So of course here, some had been well-placed in the late Spanish period and switched allegiance as their areas were pacified and other entered politics with American sponsorship. So here, they were able to successfully form the Partido Nacionalista. So this is what I said, sir. Uh, this is where now Manuel Alcazón and Sergio Asmenya un- were under. Because for them, there were two goals that they want to have. Uh, they want to consolidate their own political interest in possibility of broadening Filipino influence in the colonial states. Because of course, the benevolent assimilis- assimilis- assimilation in there, you could actually uh, still you have your independence, but not completely, because they are still governed by the America. So it's like a illusion, somewhat. But of course, we have great minds. We have great minds, geniuses. They want to uh, envisage independence of, as a culmination of successive stages of increasing Filipino autonomy. So they have two goals. Like I said, one would be convincing the Americans that the Filipinos were ready for independence. Two, at the same time. They could reduce American interest in retaining the colony to a size that American people would be willing to forfeit the country. And in fact, uh, it's one of the main drivers of the Nationalista Party to gain support is the concept of, of ushering or advancing further or quickening the, the sort of independence for the Philippines. In fact, it's not it's really highly because of the Nationalista Party that we are to we are or the political landscape that we we somehow experience today is really uh, is really rooted from from the nationalists wherein the concept of of speaking out or voicing out as actual Filipinos were were how do you call that were, were although there were there was the illustrados back then but in this context in terms of in a in a context where the state already exists as as a colony sort of and and where we get to participate. It was the very good manifestation that oh, the Filipinos can actually really 
make their place in the political system. They're they're not just like what the Spaniards view that they are illiterate or the Indios, for example, or un- uneducated or incapable to govern themselves. But the nationalists constantly showed the Americans that we desire independence and we are capable for independence. And when can you give us independence? Basically, uh, uh, one of the one of the constant bickering party of the of of during the American politics time. So we also also experience what we call as the the transition of into a more more Filipino centric rather than American centric type of sort of politics or 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 landscape where Filipinos themselves get to control more a majority of the political uh, political engagements it's also because of the nationalists nationalists constantly pushing no, about it but the the americans eventually uh budge and this is where the concept of filipinization started so can you tell me more about this filipinization uh okay sir um in the late 1912 uh, uh, Quezon returned to Manila with the new Governor General, which is uh, Francis Burton Harrison, a New York Tamani Hall politician, who uh, implemented the task, the Filipinization of the colonial state. So, um, upon taking the office, uh, Harrison immediately set the stage for a substantial shift in the colonial personnel and power, which is first, uh, one of his first orders was to curtail American executive power, especially the oversight of the provincial and local governments. It is to minimize the opposition of American bureaucrats, and he encouraged many to resign by cutting executive salaries. And also, um, he then broadened the Filipino power giving the nationalista a free hand in determining local and provincial appointments. He raised no objection when the assembly claimed the right to compel executive officials to testify and submit documents, nor did he oppose the assembly appropriation of the right to determine the budgetary allocation. So, um, Harrison uh, gave a, a perspective for us to... Um, more prioritize our, our Philippine identity towards our global state. So that's uh, one of the important aspects of the Filipino, uh, Philipp, uh, American occupation during that time. Right. So I actually have an uh, addition to that, sir. Uh, before that, it's actually kind of not really funny, of course, but you can actually see the two great minds, Esmenya and Kizan. Because before the Filipinization, yes. they were actually fighting with William Howard Taft, our first governor general. Because yeah, um, I, I believe William Howard Taft uh, yes. uh, resigned eventually. Uh, in fact, a lot of people or a lot of governor generals resigned because of the Nationalist Party. That's how that's how samok there are in terms of uh, <laughs> Philippine politics where the Americans are concerned. Mm-mm. Because these leaders, are, of course, as leaders, you want to forward the interest of your members or the, of your country. So they were not content to dominate the party in assembly as, uh, as long as the key of remain in the firm gra- grasp of the Americans. Because before, the branches, the important branches of service were not actually in their hands. It was actually in the hands of the insular authorities. These were the Americans. So when it comes to education, constabulary, forest, mines, lands, posts, and among others, were in the hands of the insular bureaus. 
and especially the tax system sir this was actually so biased because 65 percent were in the hands of the americans and only 35 percent were only in the hands of the pr- provinces and municipal treasures so of course uh america uh Quezon and serious Sir- Sir- were actually kept kept on bugging uh William Howard Taft, they kept, they kept on what you call this passing laws beneficial to their own interests. They kept, they kept on investigating the colonial budget, criticizing the policies of the Philippine Commission. So, of course, Taft kept on vetoing, vet, uh, using his veto power to override these laws, defend, defend executive appointments. But this did not, uh, what do you call this, discourage both of them. They still. Uh, strategized the halls of assembly and it was actually there started when Quezon went to uh, became the resident commissioner for the Philippines and the United States of House of the Representatives in Washington DC so here Quezon lobbied for the both Philippine interests in his own with the congressman and had a decisive control over the future Philippine affairs so we're there William Howard Taft actually uh, I think he died am, am, am I right Derecho? he actually died yes sir you yeah, surgery? surgery yes he died from a surgery yeah. oh, though- sir. oh mm. okay sorry. Go, 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 go. <laughs> in addition sir in 1916 the u.s congress gave its stamp of approval to philippinization with the philippine autonomy act which is commonly known as the jones law uh it which it places the hands of the filipino of the people of the philippines as a large a control of their domestic affairs yes yeah, so this is where we were given actual avenue to to exercise our power in politics, right? So, so like prior to that, as mentioned by Jan, the insular government was basically the the leader of almost everything in terms of state and public relations, and uh, there was little power for the Filipinos themselves. So that's why nationalists are very, uh, very sort of very pushy in terms of giving more autonomy in, for the Filipinos. So first, uh, one of the first barriers let's say that we had achieved is actually the the jones law or the <clears throat> philippine autonomy act that's also one of the big landmarks of the american period so let's fast forward into the into when we reached uh conflicts in terms of how or the filipinos themselves govern themselves so can you t- tell me more about this concept of crony capitalism in the 1920s okay crony capitalism is actually uh, this is a concept or visualizing where a, there is a capitalist society where this there is an advantageous relationship between the governor uh, government officials and the businessmen so here we have first the state itself and ex- an exchange for the appointee so here in the first state itself the spoil system this is where the spoil system exists so the filipino p- politicians they would distribute office to the relatives supporters and this political appointment of gain allies cronies became the standard practice so there's an entry into the government assured by the backing of a powerful politician. So in exchange, sir, there's an appointed facil- facilitated the business success of his patron and protected other members of his network with the bureaucracy. So there's a lot of scandals here, actually, sir, because one is for Osmenia. He's actually here, Vicente Soto, and 
Vicente Soto from Cebu. He's actually known Vicente, Vicente Soto. Now we have there a what do you call this yes. uh, institution, Vicente Soto for uh, what do you call this mentally ill people. It was named after him. <laughs> so here uh, for uh, let's say for serious menya. The other path to material enrichment was the extension of the spoils system into the economy. So here, the vehicles were the state corporations established to promote colonial economic development. So as well as the PNB, Philippine National Bank, for example, created by the Assembly to finance sugar production, exportation, was taken over by Serios Menya. But there's a violation in principle of prudence, intelligence, and even honesty. So he used the appointments of PNB offices to repay political debts without the regard of his appointee's knowledge. So here, it was actually, uh, let's say, here now we can see Serious Menia's political, uh, economic interest, political and economic interest. Because he actually took advantage of this treasury of the Philippine bank. While Manuel Elquizon was very wise because he controlled the Manila Railroad Company and likewise used the state corporation as a source of employment for supporters in Manila and in the provinces reached by the company line. So if we compare them both, Serious Mania is more on controlling the uh, businesses in a way that it on, uh, it could uh, it could benefit his power and governance and centralization. While for Manuel Elquezon, he actually uh, make use of his underdogs, wherein okay, I won't take everything for myself. I'll also give you so that you could support me next time uh, in the future future road. So something like that. Yeah, so it was actually there. This is also, for me, studying Philippine history, it's one of the biggest highlights in terms of political conflicts in the American period is between the rivalry between uh, Quezon and Osmeña. And it, in fact, it will persist even after the the Commonwealth period, after the Japanese occupation. In fact, it still existed with these conflicts between these two. So there's this constant... Uh, uh, they started as like the best friends in terms of politics and started the Nationalista Party. But then eventually it will branch off into two, which we will know, of course, in the in the future as one of the persisting party lists that we have today, that is the uh, Liberal Party list, right? So uh, <clears throat> we've known that there's this uh, ongoing conflict between the two. So before we end on the political landscape, and before we transition to the economic landscape of the country, do you have anything else to talk about? So, particularly on on the, the ideas on insurgencies, so popular insurgencies that happened during this period. Antoinette, would you like to share for the popular insurgency? Um, maybe na ako answer about kanang facts siguro kanang okay. during the Second Philippine Republic, since it was really um not kind of popular to be mentioned because it's just a a short-lived constitution. But it was an abrupt um break from the Commonwealth period, since it's just only two years, I guess short-lived yes and mostly it was um such a vulnerable political system and um it was just uh one one president it was Hus uh jose pilorel 
and the Japanese uh, uh, military uh, only accepted um, the anti-Americans to run the country elections. That's why. And just a, f- a short fact lang. Okay, so I think at this point now we can move to the economic development of the country. So we can start right away. Uh, for economics, sir, we have actually um, 10. We have 10 sec- uh, factors here. One is we have a population explosion. Second is we have new land policies. So the friar lands were now sold to the Filip- Filipino farmers. Third is agricultural increase. Four is free trade with America. Fifth is business boom. So the retail trade inside the Philippines doubled from 1907 to 1935. Filipinos had now more money to buy food, shoes, shoes, clothes, radios, toys, bicycles, and among others. Number six, new industries. We have now, the Philippines entered a new industrial uh, stage where we use now more machines to mass produce products. Seven is improvement in transportation and communications. Of course, America, they actually have, uh, they actually brought as well different kind of devices. We have automobile, electric car, electric streetcars, railroads, postal service, airplane, telephones, wireless telegraph, radios, and among others. Eight is there's now a better budget because it was balanced during the Great World War Depression in the 1930s. So even though the other governments, including the U.S. itself, had a huge deficit and problems, but the Philippines actually had a surplus in their budget. Number nine is there are now new banks such as Philippine National Bank. And lastly, number 10, international exhibitions and meetings. So this actually gave opportunities to Filipinos as well to interact to other countries with a, what do you call this, respective stand or to be uh, well, well-earned, something like that. Well, yeah, to summarize that, um, the occupational regime of the United States have opened the Philippine economy to the world market and chartered an economy to uh, various special relations with other nations. Yes. All right. So I think where we are in, in, in the current timeline of this discussion is I believe we are at the end of the American colonization. In fact, it's, a lot of scholars would argue that the American colonization did not actually end during the uh, Japanese occupation, but rather it persisted even during that time. So there was more like a, a dual dual state system in during this period. But let's start to introduce the Second Republic, which is the Japanese occupation. And I think after that, we can also discuss on the Commonwealth period. And yeah, we can end on, we can end actually on the Commonwealth period if, if time permits. Okay, so is there anyone who would like to talk about the Japanese colonization? A brief lang, because uh, they're also one of the briefest uh, forms of colonization. I think I have mentioned that in my short fact. Well, I oh, okay, yeah. So, so there is no more need to stress it over. Okay. So yes. That's, that's okay. So yeah, as I've mentioned, uh, Laurel was one of the the ones who who sort of uh, headed the state. Well, well, basically, it's like 
uh, a representative for for political Japan. It's interesting to note. And we can now move to the Commonwealth. This is one of the very interesting uh, political and economic landmarks in terms of American colonization or even in this pre-World uh, pre War II period where uh, we also we almost had this sort of taste of political independence from the America and it's uh, little to little to uh, little to few or uh, very few steps towards independence as well so can you tell me all briefly about the Commonwealth period uh, sir before that is it okay if I share a bit for the Japanese Republic just like a general overview sir for the yes. Second Republic well, actually, in October 14, 1943, it was there to establish the Second Republic. But uh, Jose Pilarel actually failed because even though they kept using propaganda to gain the trust and confidence of the Filipinos, they actually the Filipinos still refused to cooperate with them. They they even to the point that they even hang giant po- poster posters, distribute their materials that contain slogans "Na Philippines belong to Filipinos." Yeah. Third is newspapers, movies. They even they even use this one to publicize their ideas that hey, we're not here to colonize, but we're just here to extend your independence. But rather, that's a scam because it's more on using as a masquerade, something like that. Because during that war, after the war, because they actually opened the Manila, right? Because Quezon wants to open uh, the open Manila city because he doesn't want it to be destroyed because. Manila at that time was like the backbone of the economy of the Philippines. So the Japanese actually sucked dry the economy of the Philippines that time. Because of course, during that World War II, the Japan, Japan, a small country, needs money or uh, funding uh, for yeah, militarization. Yeah, yeah, militarization. They even, conf- uh, they actually, uh, what do you call this? Confiscated their enemy assets. Yeah. They the investments in agriculture, industry, commerce, mining, infrastructure were they were even taken by the Japanese, especially the inventory of goods, services in various industries, commercial establishments. They were also uh, sucked dry by the Japanese, even though there were still Filipinos who were still able to control this one. So in result, there there is now in an economic dis- disruption and impair of future various industries. So that's it, sir. The supply of goods were actually reduced and availability of consumption for on production because, like I said, uh, no, I mean, during the American occupation, we had this colonial mentality that we, we only want uh, American product, we only want foreign products, productions of imported, uh, which are imports. Of course, we, all, we didn't focus much anymore on the local production. That's why it became a big problem now during the Second Republic because the import was actually sort of cut off or reduced and we had a problem in industries now and how can we produce for ourselves so that's all sir thank you very interesting to know so like yeah of course you would understand that when there's a war there's like uh instant halt for import of certain goods like that's really a problem for filipinos who are or starting to enjoy Americanized products when in fact it was one of the start of the boom during this period as well and now I think we can transition to the last part of our discussion which is am I correct if yes, we are at the Commonwealth okay Antoinette okay, so uh, the Commonwealth uh, began in the 1935 actually and where the Filipino political 
political leaders uh, lobbied uh, Washington to hasten self-government and Washington uh, responded with the Tidings McDuffie Act which was also known as the Philippine Independence Act and it was approved the creation of a transitional 10-year Commonwealth of the Philippines with independence scheduled for 1946 and a constitutional convention to prepare for both. So this act, uh, together with a peasant uprising in the provinces north of Manila, to put an end to nationalista in fighting as Quezon and Osmania reunited to control the drafting of the constitution. So, in the resulting of the 1935 uh, Commonwealth Constitution, the existing executive legislative configuration was retained and with a, sen- uh, with a single chamber National Assembly and a popular elected president and vice president, which is uh, uh, Manuel Alquezon and Osmeña, Sergio Osmeña. All right, so... This this ten year transition period happened even during the arrival of the Japanese, right? So how do you think this persisted even during this time? How did Osmania and Quezon try to facilitate manage the Commonwealth period? At first, at first they were able to govern it right, but of course they were they were uh, what do you call this they escaped from the philippines when the spanish uh, i mean when the japanese colonizers came however they still run the government the commonwealth yes the commonwealth even though the oh wait Sorry, there was a building in our place. I had to cut off a bit because I had to warn them. Uh, again, so of course, the, the Commonwealth actually didn't stop because they were still able to run this one. Even though the, the Japanese were now here. Uh, how were they able to run this Commonwealth? Uh, after the... Well, during, let's say, before the Japanese era, it was actually Kazon and Serious Menya were able to uh, control this one, the drafting of the constitution. So Kazon wants to be on top. And of course, they have the, there is still a dispensation of patronage and spoils. But this is not enough for him because he wants to wield and expand the powers of the presidency. So in that, he used his powers like a carrot and stick to dominate the legislature and bribery. He even bribed the representatives with, with large estates, pressuring them to veto and in June 1940, after a popular referendum amended the constitution to recreate a Senate House of Representatives, Quezon successfully fought to make a senatorial constituencies nationwide in order to uproot the new Senate from its regional base. So Quezon was actually deemed as the nation in the making because he was all, he was able to control a lot of factors within the government. He even appropriated and tightened the control over such vital executive agencies such as the Civil Service Bureau, the Bureau of Budget, and the Bureau of Audit. So for the Civil Service Bureau, sir, he was he packed the upper echelons of all executive departments with loyalists. So it's more on that's why he was even deemed before like a 
dictator in a democratic period because uh, there's still democracy, but he wants a party-less democracy in a way that he can control them without without making too much enemies. So he's like, okay, you're my enemy. What do you want? I'll give you. It's like backscratching policy. Like, okay, we'll give each other favors. You do this for me. I do that for you. Because if you're not gonna do this, I'm gonna force you to do this. I'm gonna force. I'm gonna. I might kick you out or something like that. So he's like a will. Uh, like, it's like sort of. He is really has a strong power to uh, control the government. It was even according to Hayden in his book The Philippines. No governor general ever disciplined half as many provisional governors as has President Quezon, and large numbers of erring lesser local officials have been brought to book by him. So brought to book by him, he was able to control them. So we can really say that Quezon was really a genius man and a wise man. Right. So I think when you mentioned on the dictatorship, it was also I recall that the the concept of satire and caricature actually further uh, further developed rather or sort of flourished during the Quezon's time. Although there is like a uh, an existence of satire and and caricature even way before like even way before his time, like in the American colonization. But it was actually when we had this sort of localized sort of satire. Because of how 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 Quezon tries to enforce law, so the Filipinos' response to that is actually one of the very interesting things: politics and comedy. Yeah, that's just like additional information. All right. So anyway, so it's time check. It's already one one twenty three in our time. It's almost one thirty. So before we end our discussion, so we have talked a lot about the Philippines, American colonization, and the Philippines already. And before we try to end it all, can you do you have anything else to add or maybe conclude or summarize in the discussions? Uh, there is sir, one, sir, for the Commonwealth. The reason why Kazon was unparalleled because he was he actually heard the people's needs. Like when when there was Sakdal, right? Uh, it was here that he was forced to expand the circle of beneficiaries of a progressive conservatism. So. He established minimum wages for government laborers, put an eight-hour working day into effect, soaked the riches with higher taxes, and once his advisors recommended that he should veto on the grounds of economy, a law giving public school teachers full pay while on maternity leave. So he even signed uh, the bills, even if for him he said that he will sign the bills that could really benefit my people, even though even if it will bankrupt the treasury. So it's actually quite uh, a Philippine Commission. The economy and the political development was, we could say, really good because Quezon was able to balance while keeping the power and giving the benefit for the people as well. So again, nation in the making. All right. So thank you for that, Jan. How about you, Antoinette? Anything else to conclude or mention? Um, uh, the American occupation really uh, reflected in our society as well as today. Like effective ang ilanggi pang um, contribute for our whole country, which is a great, koan great. Uh, you what you call this? Uh, it was an advantage for us. Like really. Okay, so. 
So since we are at the end of our discussion, so I would like to thank our speakers, Jan and Antoinette, for sharing their insights and knowledge about the American colonization period. So this episode, we learned about uh, an introduction or uh, an overview of the time when the Americans colonized the Philippines and even up until the end and also a brief introduction about the Japanese occupation and our transition from an independent one which is the Commonwealth Constitution. So before we formally end our discussion I would just like to thank our speakers for being with us here today and also I would like to thank our listeners for lasting up until this period. So I hope I hope that you have learned something today or very uh, you have learned or gained a bit of insights about the Philippines and particularly during this period. So with <clears throat> sorry, without further ado, we can now end this podcast and we can now say goodbye to each and everyone. So thank you, David, and thank you, Antoinette, for being with us here today. Thank you, sir. You're welcome as well. Thank you, sir. All right, so Thank you everyone for listening. Have a great night. Stay safe and stay indoors.